meet Jesus. Here we are. Uh, just do, if I can have my two pennies, uh, um, thank you so much, Laura. Just two hours of, and the, and the whole band, two hours of practice and then you think on your feet. I, it's one of the most heartening things that's um, happened for me as we gather and there are many, many heartening things as a church. But one of the most heartening things is, 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 is just you bringing the reminder that it's about people um, gathering to worship the Lord and all the rest is whatever. I, I just love that. I don't know where it came, but the, that sort of just that swell of worship um, unaccompanied that kind of just amplified. And I, I don't think it was just me. I, I think that's the kind of the most voluminous worship, I think, of, in terms of sung worship, singing, that I've experienced here in quite some time. This is just deeply heartening. Here's our reading. It's from Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7. Um, so if you want to find that, I'd love you to follow it, actually. It's, it's kind of, a, I want to try and do it justice. I'm going to read it with feeling, because I think he wrote it with feeling, and I'll, I'll try and put feeling into it. Um, uh, so, yeah, find it if you can. I'm going to go from verse 14 of chapter 7, Paul's letter to the Romans, through to chapter 8 and verse 4. You, you know, don't you, the, the, the chapter headings and the all that um, chunking up the text isn't in the original, so we're reading just a, a chunk as Paul meant it to be read. He's explaining how um, the, the gospel in Jesus Christ kind of surpasses the, the, the grace given through the law to the Old Testament people of God. And now with the, the arrival of Jesus and his spirit, there's a, a new way of seeing ourselves, and this will link in hopefully to what we're going to talk, to, talk about tonight. So here, here is this reading. It's kind of autobiographical. Paul kind of just trying to explain how the, the kind of ambivalence that I imagine every single one of us has experienced. You'll, you'll relate to this, I, I think. For we know, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Father, I ask that your spirit that brings life would illuminate our hearts and minds this evening. That you'd not so much teach us new things. I don't suppose there's anything we're going to learn brand new this evening. But as we are reminded and refreshed, so you'd release more of your life in our heart, our mind, our will. Lord, as we come back to worship you at the end of our time together this evening, it would be with renewed insight, fresh vigor, deeper desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Uh, we're doing this heretic series. No, we're doing this series on Jesus, but we're looking at Jesus through the lens of heresies. Heretics were good people. They were good people, they were learned, they were wise, they were Christian people, actually. They believed in God the Father, they believed in Jesus Christ, they, they were recipients of the Holy Spirit. It's just this, in seeking to work out what the Christian faith meant in their context or in this circumstance, in this situation, to contextualize the faith, they, they just drifted off or away from Jesus. It wasn't that they stopped believing in Jesus. It wasn't that their faith was anti-Christian. It was just inadequate. It, it, it didn't go far enough. It didn't, it didn't completely explain the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, which, which I can't begin to explain to you. We receive this by faith. But it is a mystery, if you like, that God in Christ, fully divine, fully human, has reached out to us in order to bring us home to know that God as our Father, our Lord, our King. Interesting, tonight's uh, heretic, Pelagius, uh, less a, an inadequate view of Jesus Christ and more an inadequate view of our condition, our, our humanity in relation to God and Jesus Christ. The good thing about these heretics, though, is that what they did was they, they sort of drew out um, conflict. They kind of called other people and said, hang on a second, no, you, you're missing the mark here. You've not got this right. And Pelagius, he kind of stirred the enormous intellect and theological insight of none other than St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, who lived uh, sort of early 5th century and uh, in and around sort of North Africa and Carthage, and uh, he was the one who developed, uh, as a result of his, sort of his argy-bargy with Pelagius, he was the one who developed what we have, ever since this, for 1,500 years, well, we haven't really improved on his teaching, his doctrine, his understanding of sin and its impact on our lives and impact on our relationship with God. Hugely influenced the church at the time, all the way through to the Middle Ages, Augustine this is. 
uh, was a big influence on Martin Luther through the Reformation. And as I try and unpack a little bit of what Augustus, Augustine taught in relation to Pelagius, hopefully you'll recognize something of Orthodox Christianity that we've inherited today. What I want to do this evening, and I'm, I, I can see the clock and it's, oh gosh, it's screaming at me. Help me, Lord. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Pelagius' context. I want to talk about the issues that arose between Pelagius and Augustine. I want to talk particularly about this doctrine of original sin and why that's so significant and important for us to grasp and embrace, not to shy away from, and why that matters to us today. So strap in, let's go. The context, hey, Pelagius was British. We've got a heretic. <laughs> Uh, but he travelled to Rome and uh, around about 400, and uh, his teachings sort of gathered uh, momentum. And here's the thing: the bit about the context is what he what he discovered when he got to Rome was um, a kind of apathy, a lackadaisical attitude amongst the Christians there. The the um, Constantine, the first emperor, was had he was the first emperor who had converted to Christianity and it kind of legitimized Christianity after centuries of uh, the sort of underground movement, a centuries of persecution, suddenly Christianity had a, a sort of increasingly important and significant status. And so the Christians kind of relaxed a bit, took their foot off the gas, and Pelagius noted this. And so his teaching was, in a sense, to come against this, this, this complacency that he pictured all around. Hey, he said, you guys should be living authentic Christian lives. Your lives should be markedly different from those around. But there seems to be a syncretism here. You, you, you're, just, you're just blending in. You need to pull up your socks. He's British, so he used British idioms. He said, come on, let's play with a straight bat. Stiff upper lip. What's going on here? You need to try harder. You, you need a greater moral endeavor in order to differentiate, differentiate, differentiate yourself from those around, in order to live an authentic Christian life. And this is what led him into heresy, an inadequate view of the human condition, a, a faulty view of the human condition, and therefore an inadequate view of what God has done in Christ to remedy our human condition, our sinfulness. And it drew him in conflict, as I say, with um, Augustine. So here are the issues, three issues I want to touch on. Human agency. What is our potential as human beings? What are we capable of doing? The role of God's grace what is the role, the function of God's grace? And thirdly, the impact of human sin. So human agency, God's grace, human sin. First of all, human potential. What is the, what is the extent or capacity for us as human beings to live godly lives? And Pelagius argued this. He said we are fully capable of living perfect lives. We have it within us. And his reasoning was this. Genesis 1, God makes the world. He speaks it into being. And every now and then he pauses and says, this is good, this is good, this is good. He makes human beings, you and me, in his likeness. And he says, this is very good. Pelagius argues that we, as God's creatures, are part of something that is very good, perfection. Therefore, we have it in us to live perfect lives. Now, he acknowledges we don't always do that. But the potential is there. We simply need to realize the potential that's in us to live good, perfect lives. We just need to focus on it. Augustine 
based actually on his context, his own personal story of a, of a teenage life and young adult life, uh, living every kind of, indulging in every kind of sin you can imagine. Augustine said, no, our sinful state fatally compromises our ability to live for God. We're compromised by sin. And we need God both to redeem and to restore us. He, he cites a number of verses, one of them, because you'll be, I, I think, familiar with it, when John teaches to his disciples in John, uh, sorry, Jesus teaches to his disciples in John 15. And he says, um, I'm, he's the meta of the vine and the branch. He says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Bear in mind, he's not talking just to a, a crowd. He's talking to his chosen disciples, to, to, to ones that he will later on call friends. He says, I don't call you servants. You are friends. So to his inner core, his sanctum, those who, who sat under his teaching, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Augustine says, you see, it, it, outside of God, we, we don't have what it takes to live lives connected to Jesus. We need God's intervention. So human agency, human potential. And Augustine argues that, that we need God so much, it throws us onto the grace of God. We need God to intervene in order to bring us close to him. So secondly, the role of God's grace. Pelagius argued that God is gracious. He's, he's the author of grace. And so just by acting in the world, creating the world, and ultimately in sending Jesus in human form to, to live as a human being, as a perfect example, is God's grace. How generous is that? Look, I will show you how to live a good life. So grace for Pelagius is, is this. It's God's affirmation, God's approval of anyone who, by response, seeks to live a good life, to, to improve their effort or their moral endeavor. That, that, if you like, receives God's affirmation. And that is God's grace at work, according to Pelagius. Alistair McGrath, who's a, um, he was the tutor at, uh, at Wycliffe when I was training for the, for the ordained ministry, and he, he basically, he said in a, in a lecture, he said, Pelagianism is the natural heresy of England. And we might extend that actually to the, the sort of modern liberal elite in the Western world. If I, you know, if I try to put a, put a jacket on, come to church, say my prayers, read my Bible, give a little bit of charity, help little old ladies across the road, then, um, you know, God will look down. Good, good lad. Better than that guy? Better than that guy? Well done you. You're in. It's basically the religion of England, isn't it? If we're honest. You know, if we just try a little bit, God will look out for me. God will approve. When I often I visit, I do my evangelism around uh, what are known as the occasional offices, baptisms, weddings, funerals, occasions. And uh, so I, I meet with people. And I'm very often, particularly around baptism, when people want me to, to, to baptize their child. And I, uh, but then not sure quite where they are in terms of a relationship with God and so we, we get talking and, and they see the dog collar and they oh gosh uh, uh, and they come out with well you know I, I come to church try my best we, we, you know we do our best it's Pelagianism it's Pelagianism Augustine's view of grace is completely different he, he, he says that Pelagian, Pelagius completely underestimates the real human issue the issue of our heart the heart of the human problem 
as someone once said, is the problem of the human heart. And God's grace is, is not sort of approval on us trying a little bit harder. God's grace comes in illuminating our hearts to the reality of their sin. God's grace comes as he gently yet persistently tugs at our conscience to show that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's God's grace that helps us realize that, that brings those aha moments to us. Oh, maybe not so much aha as, oh gosh. <laughs> oh. And then helps us to look for ways in which God has already acted in history to bring us into relationship with him. I guess it was this area particularly that leads us to the third issue, arguably the most significant, is around the idea of sin and its impact on our lives and through our sinful lives to the impact on those around us and we would say, wouldn't we, in the middle of this conference, the impact of the world which God has made. Sin has um, spoiled, undermined the goodness, the beauty of creation. And Pelagius simply, I don't know, we have it within ourselves to stop sinning. It's just as he, as he looked around Rome, he said, look, you guys, you, you know everything, you don't need more sermons, you don't need more, you, you've got everything you need, just stop sinning, live better lives. Live with a sense of moral integrity that will point to those who don't yet know God, to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pelagius doesn't deny the fall, by the way, so creation and then the fall of Adam and Eve. He doesn't deny that there is sin, but he, he refers to it more as the habit of sin that was set in train by the fall. And crucially, Pelagius argues that the human will was not tainted by sin. So whilst we, we do sin, and sin is around, that signifying the break of our relationship with God through our behaviors, we've got everything in our power to stop sinning. I wonder, I wonder what some people engaging with Pelagius thinking would make of progress in COP26, or even the fact that we got to the situation where we're at with the environment and the world in which we live. More personally, I wonder how Pelagius' view of our ability to, to just will as we, as we would desire matches up with how we fare with New Year's resolutions. Is there something at war, as Paul would say in the text that we had, something that works against the desire to do good? I, I, I know I want to do good, yet somehow I don't do the good I want to do. I don't want to do evil, and yet somehow I do the evil that I don't want to do. And Augustine developed his idea of, uh, which we've come to receive as this idea of original sin. It is simply this idea that our, our sin is more than just habits or actions. That all human beings are born with a predisposition to sin. A predisposition to veer away from what we know is good and right and noble and pure. A predisposition to, to, to teeter into, to, to, to just titillate around that which we know is less than glorifying to God. It's woven into our nature. An original sin, this predisposition to sin, weakens our will and resolve. 
It, I mean, it's not that everything we do is... It's not that we're not capable. The doctrine of original sin, Augustine, he wouldn't argue that we're not capable of many good and virtuous things. Yet we are, much of the time. We are. The fact that Paul in this text can talk about knowing the difference between good and evil and desiring good is in every single one of us. When God made the world and said that it's very good, he's speaking of that. But in the gift of free will and in our choosing through Adam and Eve and then all the way through the line of human history, that disobedience, it's tainted us and original sin affects each and every one of us. I, um, if, I'm, if I'm kind of doing a kind of teaching point in school assemblies, um, around, I don't go into school assemblies to teach on original sin, but I kind of, you know, I'm sort of finding a way to see why would I need, why might one need a saviour? Uh, so I put it like this to the, to the children. I say, can I ask you honestly? I say, just, just put your hand up. Be honest, if you will. How many of you have ever had your parents sit you down and say, Ahmed, Sonia, whoever you are, you've been so good for so long, we need to teach you how to be naughty. <laughs> they kind of respond similarly. There's, there's not many hands go up. I, sometimes just to sort of make the point, I flip it around. I say, um, comes, how many times do your parents kind of say, can you put your hand up if, if your parents have ever sat you down um, and said, you know, Ahmed, Sonia, we need you to be a little bit better. We, we need you to learn how to be good. I'm sort of hands raise up. I was doing this one. one uh, we have Thomas's Fulham coming here regularly. I love that school. And I was, they were sat all here. And I was making this point. I said, can you put your hand up if your parents ever, ever had to teach you? And there's this guy in the front of you. And he just went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of caught his eye. I said, oh, mate. He said, pretty much every day. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully made my point, though. <laughs> it's in us all. Tiny story. Um, one of our children, when they were old enough to uh, use words, but still not old enough to be able to put too many words or string sentences together. That's how young they were. And we were at my mum and dad's, and uh, mum and dad had a little sort of, they got a little sort of um, kind of patio with a lovely flower bed. And um, a little one was running around, and uh, and every now and then was sort of running, just you know, too too young to realise, was running from the patio and across, the, just running all over the flower bed. And we said, "Oh, pop it! No, no, no! You you can run, you can run, you can run here, you can run here, you can just run, 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 run. But just the one place where you can't run is on the clearly marked out where it, where it's earth and flowers, not there. Anywhere else? This is, by the way, does this structure remind you of anything in scripture? You can do, you're free to anywhere, anywhere, free. You just go for it. Just the one place, no, is there. I was, I promise you, I was shocked that between Joe, my wife, and I, we had produced a little human being who did the following. Looked at the vast expanse of freedom that had been offered, looked at the one prohibition, then looked up and fixed us a gaze, and then did this. Let's imagine, the, let's imagine the step here, the wooden bit is the flower bed. This is what they did, I promise you. Fixed a, ga fixed a gaze. 
tapped in the flower bed. Just tapped. Little. Couldn't put sentences together. Fixed the gaze, knew exactly what they were doing. I'll tell you that story, if any of you, God willing, I'd love for every single one of you to find someone that you can um, marry, have children with. If any of you, when you become parents, what a privilege, but you will have that at some stage. Every single one of your offspring, or there'll be nieces or nephews or godchildren or little people that you are connected with or involved in, that's going on. Original sin. Can I just say, this little person is absolutely wonderful. They've grown up. Oh, they're amazing. They're capable of such good. But inside them, and inside me, and inside all of us, if left original sin. Listen to Paul. Romans 7, verse 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I. He knows the agony. He knows the angst, as he describes there, of what it is to live in that kind of, in that kind of betwixt and between the, the war, spiritual war, if you like, between what I know I should do and what I'm actually doing. And Augustine argues that Pelagius completely underestimates the power of original sin and its impact on our lives. So if I use a, a, let's use the sort of analogy of illness. Um, a little cough. I have a little cough. <laughs> and Pelagius says, well, it's only a cough. I'm be, I'll be fine. It's only a cough. It's, I, I, yeah, no, sure, I've got a little cough, but I'll be fine. I can go to work, I can do all sorts, I can drive the car, I can do all sorts of things. It's only a cough. So it's why actually Pelagianism, I think, is, is, is the British religion. I don't mean Christian, Orthodox Christian relationship, I mean Christian religion, because it's, it's, sort of, it's fine, soldier on, stiff upper lip, brush it under the carpet. So all, kind of, all, all of those kind of things are the, kind of the soil in which Pelagianism flourishes. I've got, got a cough, but I'm fine. Augustine would argue, <laughs> a little cough. It could be nothing, or it could be a symptom of something denoting illness. Either way, a little cough demonstrates I'm not 100% well. And actually, isn't a little cough one of the symptoms of COVID that we know now has killed, goodness knows how many people? Augustine says, pay attention. <laughs> So Pelagius says, it's fine, you know, we'll get over it, it's fine. Or in the analogy, is it possible to have the slide? Um, we've kind of been using this uh, rescue analogy. There's the helicopter, there's the, the guy lower down on the line. You can just see sort of about seven o'clock, he's, he's inching towards the victim in the water. And if we were to deploy that analogy, um, Pelagius says, no, no, fine, don't, don't, don't bother, I'm fine, I, I can swim to shore, I've got it within me, I can rescue myself, I don't need saving, I, I know how to swim, I'll get to shore. Augustine argues, I'm in the sea, and it's quite cold, and I'm aware of the onset of hypothermia, and whilst I'm not dying right now, if I stay in this situation, I will die, 
I need rescuing. And because I can't swim to shore, shore is nowhere, and there's no other rescue, I can't save myself. I need some external agency to come and bring me out of this sea in order to effect my rescue. What a wretched man am I, says Paul. Wretched as in I am hopeless without God's rescue. That's, that's God's grace on our human inability to overcome original sin. Now, look, look, why is this uh, important? Implication for today. Look, it, right today, this is, this, I think Will said at the start, you know, Pelagianism is, is rife today. We, th- we think these heresies, you know, because they came to light in the 5th century, we think that was when they existed. No, they're alive and flourishing today. This is an article written in the Sunday Telegraph last week by a lady called Mary Dauda, who is, um, she's a lecturer at Oriel College. And um, she basically is writing about um, uh, uh, a head teacher, apparently known as the toughest head teacher in, in England, uh, a lady called Catherine Burblesing. And she says this, um, Dauda, who's the, written the article, says this, Burble Singh, who is sometimes described as Britain's toughest head teacher, is not a Christian herself. Sorry, I should say, she used the um, phrase original sin to describe the sort of, uh, uh, the, the sort of mess that she perceives uh, some of society is in. She's not a Christian. So uh, Burble Singh, who sometimes described as Britain's toughest head teacher, is not a Christian herself and did not mean to start a feud about Christian doctrine. In this case, the idea that a tendency to evil is innate in all human beings. Yet the backlash, massive backlash on Twitter, social media, so on, the backlash reveals one of the fundamental flaws of our post-Christian society. We now have no choice but to pretend we're practically perfect in every way. Interesting. In our post-Christian culture, so there's no God, so we don't have to talk about right or wrong, good or evil. That's all, no, that's all old-fashioned. That's all past. But what is, what's the only option left to us is everything's good. That's what, what Dauda here is identifying is a, a, a tendency to Pelagianism. And actually, it's in that word, we now have no choice but to pretend we're practically perfect in every way. It's that word pretend. Because Dauda's arguing, we all know that isn't the case. So she says, goes on to say in her article, the each and every one of us perfect, is perfect dogma is inherently flawed. If we're all perfect, what am I supposed to think of a person who's hurt or offended me? Good question. And, and actually where she's leading to in this stage of her article is good old Augustinian thinking and theology. She's defending the idea of original sin. We, we've got to pretend we're perfect, but we all know that isn't the case. So what do I do when I confront some kind of imperfection either in others or in myself? But here's the thing. I, I did a bit of research on, online on Dauda to try and find out a bit more about her. I don't think, forgive me if I got this wrong, but I don't think she's a practicing Christian. So in a post-Christian culture, here's someone who isn't a Christian writing about someone who else who isn't a Christian. So where's this article going to go? Having identified Augustinian thinking on original sin, guess what? It just, it just subverts back into a new form of Pelagianism. So this is what she says. Original sin means we are not perfect. Tick. 
but eminently perfectable. I'd agree with conditions. Who's the one perfecting us? Ah, it's for the sake of the nature of goodness in all of us that we ought to keep an eye on the manifestations of original sin. It allows an educator to see that imperfect pupils can become better. With proper guidance, a lazy slacker can become a fast learner and a bully can be turned into a supportive friend. In the absence of a worldview that, that considers God acting in Jesus Christ, did you hear it in the text already? In or through Jesus Christ. What do we do with our Augustinian revelation but circle back round and try a bit harder? It's the educators or it's the parents or it's society at large. Let's all just try a bit harder. Pelagianism. Interesting. In the rhetorical question, what am I supposed to think of a person who's hurt or offended me? This is what she says. According to contemporary orthodoxies, that person is not really deemed to be human at all, but a kind of monster who ought to be cast out or publicly condemned on social media. Interesting. So in a, in a, in a Pelagian world where everything's fine, everything's perfect, except that it isn't, so what do we do when we discover that it isn't? We demonize them. They're not human. They're cast out. They're monsters. They're publicly condemned on social media. Isn't that interesting? I was reading someone else expressed a view on Twitter. A lot of people disagree with him. So he just closed down his whole Twitter account. Why did he do that? He said, I was being crucified on Twitter. Oh, the irony. We are in this post-Christian, which many people have seen, thank goodness we've got rid of that horrible medieval and worse, that abusive sort of religious system. Thank goodness we're now free. And in our freedom, we're crucifying each other. When, when what Paul says is that if we can get to the root of Pelagianism, if we can, or Augustine would probably say that, Pelagius lived after Paul, but uh, it, what Augustine would say is if we can root out Pelagianism, we can fully embrace the full implications not only of our original sin, but of what God has done in Christ to rescue us. <laughs> yes, someone was crucified so that we don't have to crucify each other. If you use the analogy, we're all in the sea, and Pelagius says, yes, we're in the sea, and it's not great, but we can swim to get to shore. Or according to Daoud and, 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 uh, and 21st century culture, we're all in the sea and it's perfect. It's lovely and warm, lovely, fantastic, absolutely fine. Except that it isn't. And we're so desperate that it isn't that we start to crucify one another. And this is what Paul says. Chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the rescue. There's the hope. There's the freedom. Here's the thing. In the rescue, it's not enough that we know the rescuer. It's not enough in that picture, you remember it, the, the, the person in the water, and they can see the rescue down, and the rescue's 10 feet away. I mean, the helicopter's there, the rescue line, the rescuer, but if they're 10 feet away, you know the rescuer. 
crucially, you don't know the rescue. I talk, when I talk to these people, the baptism couples and, and everyone, people around about outside, they, we talk about Jesus, they know about Jesus, but do you know Jesus? And do you know Jesus' rescue? Because you see, in order to understand Jesus' rescue, for that to be meaningful for you, you need to know that you need rescuing. And that's where the inherent Pelagianism, you know, no, no, I'm fine, I'm just, if I try a bit harder, come to church, say my prayers, read the Bible, all fine, all fine. Oh. Augustine argues, no, original sin, you, you underestimate the power of original sin. We need rescue, we're in the water, we're drowning. The, the beautiful sign is when, is when the rescuer swims over to us and he has, he has the harness. And so he, he kind of puts the harness around us like that. But even then, I'm not rescued. It's not until I, I kind of reach for the line. And here, this is the sound that every single one of us needs to, needs to hear. It's the clip of the carabiner. Because that is the point of connection where me in the sea of sin can get hoisted up by my able assistant. That'll do. <laughs> He's getting carried away now. I'll, I'll leave it there as a, as a hanging emblem. I'll take this off because it looks silly. I'll hang it there as a permanent reminder. Me in the sea of sin, you and I in the sea of sin, click to know the rescuer's rescue. Means this, and I, I, I'm finishing here. It means that we can combat the inherent Pelagianism that was rife all down the centuries and even today. Because it's, it's realistic about our human capabilities. We, we're capable of so many good things, but we are flawed. And God's grace does more than just, oh, don't worry, well done, try a bit harder. No, God's grace comes into our hearts to reveal our situation. We're in the sea and we're getting cold, and God says yes. And if you stay there, you will die. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes. But God's free gift is eternal life, is rescue in Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23. And to take seriously original sin, to embrace the concept of original sin, precisely because we have a saviour, a rescuer. I can talk about sin. In fact, Christians sing about sin. Pelagius says, don't worry, I, you know, we can try harder, all will be all right. And Christians say, no, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Um, just to kind of contemporize, I once was drowning. But now I'm rescued. I was blind, but now I see. I can embrace fully the doctrine of original sin. Once I know the rescuer's rescue, the click of the character that means that even if I'm still in the sea, soaking wet and freezing cold, my hope is that I'll be pulled out of danger, rescued, restored, redeemed, and carried home.
Let's stand together. Matt and the band, can I? Laura, guys, come back. I'm going to hand over to Will in just a moment, but just, just as they make themselves ready, as we make ourselves ready, as we digest the, the wondrous truth of the good news of God's grace through Christ by his spirit in our lives. <clears throat> for some of us here actually maybe there may be some of us here I don't know everyone here I don't know your walk your context your situation it may be that some of you have never heard that click you didn't realize you were drowning you, you basically walked into the building as a Pelagian <laughs> lots of good things about it's just flawed it's just it doesn't see the complete Jesus you you didn't realize that Jesus came to rescue and so you well, I, I, why would he do that? I don't need rescuing. You go, oh, actually, because the grace of God is working on your spirit and in your conscience. You go, actually, I see it. I, 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 I do that. And I fall short of the glory of God. And God has come to fill the gap. He's come to bring us home. Oh, I never realized. Yeah, that Caribbean clip is for you. You can know the rescue of God out of the hopelessness of sin. And it could be as we worship, but you simply, it's a, prayer, it's a little prayer in your heart. You just say, oh God, I recognize I'm drowning. Oh God, thank you for sending Jesus. Oh God, thank you that he's got a carabiner. <laughs> and he clips into me and he brings me out of sin and into brand new life. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you start to live for God with the law of the spirit of life. Overcoming the law of sin and death. It's just others as we worship you know that you know the rescuer but i wonder whether you've you've kind of we've almost you've almost unclipped the carabiner you, you said to yourself I, I i ignored the warning signs um and i shouldn't have been here it's my fault this is all my fault i'm in the sea and so i i got myself into this mess i've got to get myself out of this mess i i, I should i ought to that's all kind of seedbed language of pelagianism it's you know i can do it i can do it And here is God in Christ by his spirit walking amongst us now, looking to clip or reclip or do up the carabiner to bring us out of hopeless Pelagianism and into grace-filled living with God. So as we worship, maybe those are the prayers we're shaping in our hearts and minds for God's glory. Amen.